From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. L.A. County public health officials are asking residents to avoid grocery shopping this week if possible and to stay inside. This week is seen as key to limiting the spread of COVID-19. Nearly 150 county residents have died from the coronavirus so far, but there's some positive news both here and in the nation's hardest-hit area of New York City. The rate of increase in cases appears to be slowing. This hour, we'll talk with an infectious disease specialist, and we'll also hear from L.A. County Supervisor Catherine Barger. She'll tell us about efforts to try and house L.A. County's homeless residents. It's Air Talk right after NPR News. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Hope your day's off to a strong start. We're going to continue today with our coverage of COVID-19. We are getting some positive developments, although we don't want to get too excited and, and back off of the protective measures that people are taking. But it does appear that the rate of increase in the spread of COVID-19 cases is slowing somewhat. That's very positive. Los Angeles County Health Authorities are urging individuals during what they're calling a very critical week to stay home this week and, if possible, if you're okay with supplies, to avoid grocery shopping, to try and limit your interactions in the world absolutely as much as you possibly can to see if Los Angeles County and other parts of Southern California can help to turn the corner on COVID-19 as soon as possible. Joining us to start our conversation today is Los Angeles County Supervisor Catherine Barker. And if you have questions for the supervisor about what the county is doing to try and stem the spread of COVID-19, we're at 866-893-KPCC, or you can post on our air talk page kpcc.org. Supervisor Barger, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, good morning, Larry. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. You taking a bit of solace at least that the rate of increase seems to be slowing? Well, what it tells me is that people are listening, and so I'm so appreciative of those that have taken uh, the safer at home seriously. Uh, There's no question that is helping, but I don't want people to think that we're out of the woods yet. You know, you talk about slowing down here, L.A. counties. Um, yesterday, our number was down, but that's only because we're coming off a weekend. I think this week is going to be very telling as we ramp up testing and um, really get access out throughout the entire county to people to get tested. So I'm cautiously optimistic, I mean, but I don't want people to let their guard down. Very good. Let's talk about testing specifically. How many sites are up now in the county? So right now there are, I believe, um, well, we're doing it with the city as well in, ter- in terms of the number of sites. And so in L.A. County, we've got uh, Pomona, Antelope Valley. I think there's about eight. Okay. And add to the city, add to the city, there's probably six that they've got. So we've got about 14. So just over a dozen that are now open. And we heard from Mayor Garcetti last night that now individuals who have symptoms, it appears likely that they can get a test. They don't have to be in a high risk group or over 65. Well, they can they can 
register, they can request a test. I think there's that that needs to be clarified by the city because um, there's an important distinction in terms of who qualifies to get the test. Um, and so I, I can't speak for the city, but at least in the county, we're sticking with those that are showing symptoms. I mean, you have to you have to register, and then and then if you meet the criteria, they send you for the testing. You just don't show up at a test site. Okay. And do you need a referral from a physician or not? Uh, not necessarily. Um, and that, and that's where filling out, if you go on lacounty.gov, uh, there's frequently asked questions and, and it will outline the parameters in terms of the testing and, and who would qualify. But if you're not under a doctor's care, I mean, we always encourage people to reach out to their provider. And even in the county, that would be um, one of our clinics, reach out to them to um, find out whether or not they recommend they go in for testing. But um, if someone does not have a provider, they can go online and sign up. And if they fit into the criteria, then then they would be moved forward. All right. Uh, and just clarifying the numbers, uh, seven Los Angeles city sites and then the six you mentioned for the county. So 13 is what we've got across L.A. County. So just clarifying, although, of course, there may be some that are opening. Uh, 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Now, cities are attempting to find ways of housing those living in their cars or tents or encampments, and hotel rooms is something that's been looked at. Do you have any details on how many people countywide are being sheltered in hotels? Well, so, I mean, you know, one thing I want to say is it just tells me when you work together, you can move mountains. And working with the state, our goal is to get 15,000 beds up uh, by April 26th, uh, contracting with hotel and motels throughout the county. And so right now we are finalizing, I think we've got 12 additional sites that are being finalized probably today or tomorrow. And we've executed 15 lease agreements throughout the entire county, which totals about 1,000 hotel motel rooms that will be available. And one of the things I'm stressing is that people are saying, well, how can you – you know, how can you end up in one of these? How do I know where to go? We're working with our service providers uh, to be that link to get people into these beds. And uh, so that it's important for us to work with the nonprofits and those that are already literally on the street doing the outreach. And we're giving them the resources available to get people off the street. We're talking with Los Angeles County Supervisor Catherine Barger about the county's efforts to stem the spread of COVID-19. We're talking about homeless services as well as testing. Uh, We'll talk a little bit later about small businesses in the county and what the county is doing to help with uh, those challenges. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. One of the challenges with some members of the homeless community is um, going to be with services that they need, mental health services, addiction treatment, and the like. Uh, For those that are going into hotel rooms, are there wraparound services that are available during this time when um, people are doing physical distancing? Absolutely. I think that is one of the most important aspects to what we are rolling out, and that is providing supportive services for those individuals that are in need. And um, in order for this to work, 
that's got to be a key component moving forward. And so uh, absolutely, uh, especially the mental health component, uh, we are going to have the wraparound services um, and the supportive services for individuals, which also includes getting them signed up for any um, benefits that they may have. I mean, one of the things that I found is, especially those that are VA um, or veterans, they don't realize they may qualify for services. Uh, and, and so we will have people there to really completely um, do a wraparound as it relates to what they would qualify for as well. Our goal is not only to get them off the street, but to help get them back on their feet. What about um, efforts to keep them safe in um, hotels or motels? Because, yet, I mean, ironically, it might be easier in some cases uh, for people who are living in encampments or in their cars to physically uh, distance themselves. That might be more challenging in the public spaces of hotels and motels. So how is uh, the county, uh, in conjunction with cities, trying to address that? Well, I mean, that's. I mean, the social distancing is something that is a uh, is going to be very much practiced and focused on. We have public health that will be on site, and um, and that is being taken into consideration. And I mean, if there are those that are going into areas for quarantine, um, they will have their food brought to them. I mean, we are making we're going to great um, we're making great effort to make sure that not only for those that are uh, maybe in isolation, but also those that are just getting off the street to um, to have the social distancing in place. And so that that's all being taken into consideration when we put people uh, in any of these sites. And then when you talk about safety beyond that, um, security is going to be in play there as well. So, I mean, we, we've thought of everything as it relates to checking them in, checking their temperature, um, making sure that, that um, you know, they've got what they need in order to get through this period and food included and then uh, – uh, providing the services beyond uh, just the, the materialistic, um, so mental health, health. All right. Uh, Joe in Hollywood says, I'm a homeless senior. I live in my car. I'm mildly symptomatic. I can't get through to any of the private organizations offering the rooms. Uh, it's been difficult to get in contact. Um, Catherine Barger, do you have any advice for Joe on how to get out of his car? And 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 I wonder, being mildly symptomatic, um, he probably should be screened first thing. Absolutely. So, so did he email you? Did Joe email he you? He called us actually, and maybe we can get his phone number if that would be helpful. And I, I could have someone call him immediately, and I'm, that would be great. The goal is for the p- providers that are currently in that community, and I'm sure if he if he ha- if he's familiar with any of the providers in the area that he's currently um, in his car, um, they have all that um, uh, information. But I will definitely follow up on that as soon as I hang up. All right. Very good. We will email your office Joe's phone number. So we're taking Joe's number offline and we'll provide that to your office. We're talking with L.A. County Supervisor Catherine Barger. Her district is the fifth, which represents the valleys, San Fernando, Santa 
Clarita, Antelope Valley, much of the San Gabriel Valley as well. And we're talking with her about um, what the county's doing to respond to COVID-19. 866-893-KPECC. Louise in Pasadena says since foster youth age out at 21, their stipends or the stipends that uh, caregivers receive stop. So those foster young people at 21, their housing immediately stops. Is there anything that that can be done to stop the aging out at 21 during this time of COVID-19? Well, first of all, we have put a priority, transitional age youth. So housing is one of the number one priorities as it relates to um, uh, providing housing opportunities. And so uh, foster youth that are transitioning out at 21, uh, we want them to be able to either continue to go to school or get a job and save. So we do have housing in place and we are actually increasing that Um, prior to COVID-19. That was one of the top priorities for this board as it relates to affordable housing. Uh, So that is something that is not lost on any of my colleagues or myself. And I feel like we have an obligation to make sure that our foster youth that are transitioning out have that opportunity because it's no fault of their own that they are in the system and we are their de facto guardians. Therefore, we have an obligation. Would it make sense in the short term to extend the stipends to caregivers for um, the foster youth living with them temporarily past the age of 21, just so they're not changing households in the middle of COVID-19? You know, that, and I will take that back to the state because uh, the state really is the one that puts together um, all these type of uh, financial reimbursement and all. So I think that is an excellent suggestion. And, and you know, the, the, the wonderful thing about working with the state right now is that they are very much uh, in real time addressing some of the, if you will, um, uh, barriers that we didn't even think of as it relates to COVID-19. So I will actually take that up to the state. Uh, and is, is that is that something that after we're through this crisis, any hope that that could continue? Because this is an ongoing challenge that everything that needs to be addressed by the state takes forever to be acted on. Could that change from this? You know, Larry, I don't know. I, you know, I, I would hope um, that the lesson to us all is that we need to be fluid and you need to be able to pivot quickly, uh, especially when you're dealing with something like uh, the COVID-19, uh, you know, to, to be seen. I, I really do believe that, that in my lifetime, never experienced anything like this. I think it's changed a lot of things and a lot of the ways that we are doing things, not only in government, private sector, across the board. All right, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. JSK writes, is there a number for those who think they're symptomatic um, to you know, be able to call and um, be able to find out about testing? So, uh, and let me just correct myself. It was ni- It's 19 test sites because they're, they're putting online MLK, uh, and then East L.A. is going to have one, and then we're doing one down in the South Bay. Oh, great. Okay. 
And so I'm sorry, repeat the question. So, yeah, the question from listener JSK was, um, is is there a phone number that people can call who think they're uh, symptomatic uh, so that they can, uh, you know, and if it's a long wait, he wonders, could there be a callback feature like some customer service centers have so you're not waiting on hold endlessly? So before I hang up with you, I will have a phone number. I don't have it in front of me. Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, it's we. I know we do it on the website because really, when we are asking people to register, they have to go on the website. But there may be an, a phone number that, at public health that someone can call to get that information, or they can call two one one. But I know there's a, a toll free number as well. So two one one, and then before the end of this, before the end of this program, I will give you that phone number. That sounds great. We have a couple of listeners who say they have property that is sitting empty right now. One has a large house near downtown, 10 beds total, uh, and wondering how to make it available. Brian in Koreatown says he has a large apartment that's empty, and they want to know how they can offer these units. So, you know, I, 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 I will tell you that LASA, the L.A., Los Angeles Housing uh, Authority is, I'm, I'm sorry, how, Homeless Services Authority is really spearheading all of that. And so I would encourage them to call um, the LASA uh, group and, and register with them. One of the reasons why we're able to get all these hotels and motels online so quickly is there's no occupancy. So they are looking for an opportunity to enter into contracts with the county and we are looking at facilities like that because our resources, and I'm not talking money, I'm talking people, are stretched very thin. So to have them on one campus, if you will, makes it a lot easier to provide the supportive services necessary, including the, the food. Um, but I know that, that the um, L.A. Uh, Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority it, would love to hear from anyone who may have an opportunity, even beyond COVID-19, uh, for individuals that are either near near homeless, which means that they are one paycheck away and they can't afford their rent, um, or those that, that are looking for an affordable uh, place to live. We're talking with Los Angeles County Supervisor Catherine Barger. When we come back, we'll continue talking about the issue of housing and uh, eviction protections for renters. Uh, we'll talk about it both on the residential and on the business side, and also talk about landlords, uh, what are they able to ask for or not, as a way of, of having documentation of a tenant's financial distress. You're listening to Where Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Back in just one minute. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Our listener who posted about having a large house near downtown available, so he went to the LASA website, and there's no contact info on it. I just, during the break, checked, and yeah, I can't find any contact info either. So we'll contact LASA, the L.A. Um, Homeless Services Authority, and see if we can get some more information about that. And also in the coming days, we'll have uh, the director of LASA hopefully joining us to take your calls and your questions about uh, services. Uh, We're at 866-893-KPCC. There is an information hotline for LASA, which is 213 
That's apparently staffed from 7.30 until 4.30 in the afternoon. So hopefully that's helpful. We're talking with L.A. County Supervisor Catherine Barger. Uh, Supervisor Barger, what sorts of protections are available locally to those renting both on the residential and on the commercial sides? Well, as you know, when when this COVID-19 hit, um, I signed an executive order which uh, was an eviction moratorium to protect individuals from falling into homelessness uh, through eviction. And when we talk about the safer at home, that means everyone, because small businesses and major corporations are shutting down and reducing their hours. And so we did not want individuals to be put in a position where they weren't going to be able to pay their rent and they were going to be evicted. Uh, So that eviction moratorium goes into effect through May 31st. And what I tell people, it doesn't mean you don't have to pay your rent. I encourage people to reach out to their landlords. Um, The tenants will have six months to repay their rent after the executive order is terminated. But and they can work out a payment plan with their landlord. But it's important for us to and, and this also goes for businesses as well. So it's important for us to work together so that we don't increase the number of homeless uh, as a result of this this horrible, horrible crisis. Is there documentation that landlords can require of tenants to show that they are going through financial uh, distress so that you don't have, in some cases, uh, tenants who don't need to do so delaying rent payments? Well, I think that's why it's important for, for to point out that this does not mean you're not going to have to pay your rent. Um, Because you will have to pay your rent. We're just giving you an opportunity to get back on your feet. Uh, And so that's why I say it's important for them to reach out to their landlords. At this point, we're not mandating that requirement. We're just saying that, number one, um, you cannot evict someone if not for non-payment. And number two, if you are in um, an apartment or or a home and you're not paying your rent, that does not mean that you are, once this eviction is lifted, not going to be required to pay for those months that you were uh, not paying. So, you know, I I, I know that there's going to be individuals that may take advantage of it, but at this point, for the county, the goal was to put something in place so that, that landlords uh, would not evict, but also for individuals not to feel the stress of not being able to pay their rent and have a fear that they're going to end up on the street. All right. Um, we have a listener, Laura in Island Park, who says, I think public transportation should be stopped. I've seen people on buses sitting shoulder to shoulder. My husband's a bus driver. He comes home and tells me there are many people on the bus. Has there been a thought about limiting or halting public transit? So we've cut down on service, but we're not going to eliminate public transportation. I mean, there are people that still depend upon it. We have essential workers um, that depend upon it. And so we encourage people to practice social distancing. You can no longer enter a bus from the front. We are, you have to enter it from the back. Social distancing, and again, you know, Larry, I, I want to emphasize to all the listeners, it shouldn't be about government telling you that you have to do it. Um, we have said this over and over and over again. So I, for those that are using public transportation, social distancing also applies to those that are in, in and on buses, um, light rail, subways, trains. Uh, and it's just, to me, a common sense issue. Uh, but we need to keep reinforcing the social distancing. But to, to terminate public transportation right now, 
uh, I think would be a disaster for many who depend upon it. Well, and particularly in Laura, I understand what you're saying about your husband and his vulnerability as a driver. Your your concerns are certainly founded. Um, but for many people who work in the healthcare industry, they may not have a personal automobile. People who are working at supermarkets, involved in vital services, and if they can't get to work, it's not just about their income, as, as important as that is, but about their service of the public doing what is essential work. Right, and and understand this that that one of the reasons why people are entering from the back um, is to protect the bus driver because when they come up in the front, um, they come almost face to face. So our goal was to try to protect our bus drivers who are essential workers. You know, we talk about the first responders, we talk about the the um, healthcare professionals, but we have a lot of uh, people out there that have truly stepped up and made a difference. And I would say that our our bus drivers and all of our people working in transportation fit into that category as well. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about assistance to county businesses. Uh, is there anything that the county is able to do? And I'm speaking broadly, whether it's um, you know working between uh, a, a business that rents from the property owner uh, to tiding them over until they'll be able to reopen post-COVID-19? Is there anything the county's able to offer? So, you know, the state, first of all, the state has released their data showing that there's been a 370% increase in unemployment insurance claims processed from the week prior. So that tells me that 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 it's gone from 186,000 to 880,000 statewide. There's no question that we are going to have to help many, many businesses rebuild uh, we have a workforce development um, division within the county. We've also got consumer business affairs that can can help navigate the SBA, Small Business Administration loans. The federal government's released uh, a program where if you've got a business and you will not, you, you will promise not to let, uh, fire anyone. It, it's a it, it's a it will become a grant. So we we are here to help people navigate through all these different. Um, uh, financial assistance, uh, both federal and state and county, that are available. But but the county is going to be more of the one to help kind of navigate um, what is available uh, because a lot of those programs are state and federal programs. Supervisor Catherine Barger, thank you so much for being with us. I know you're extraordinarily busy uh, leading the Board of Supervisors and representing your district. Uh, I would love to have you back with us next week if we could do this again, uh, and we'll be in contact. I hope we could work that out. Larry, anytime. I I know that um, you are, a lot of people listen to you. I want to thank you for educating the public and bringing a lot of what is going on right now uh, to light because this is how we're going to get the word out so that we can once again um, go back to uh, business and, and really helping people get their lives back together. Thank you so much. Supervisor Catherine Barger, Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. We've been so fortunate every day during the COVID-19 pandemic spread to be able to have a medical professional with us, an infectious disease specialist or epidemiologist or public health authority to walk us through what we're learning about COVID-19 and to also elaborate on the protective measures that public health officials have implemented to try and and slow the spread of COVID-19. We're very pleased to have back with us today from Huntington Hospital 
Hospital in Pasadena, infectious disease specialist, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner, welcome back. Thank you, Larry. Nice to be here. So we want to invite listeners to give us a call. Our phone lines are open for you at 866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722 or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. You can also tweet at AirTalk or ask a question via Facebook and our AirTalk Facebook page. Dr. Schreiner, let's talk about the expansion of testing sites inside. Southern California, um, and people having the ability now to apply uh, who have symptoms that they believe could indicate COVID-19. They don't have to necessarily be high risk or older. Uh, How is this going to affect, do you think, the tabulation of cases? Well, I'm I'm hoping that it will actually give us a much better handle on exactly how much uh, virus we have in the community and perhaps um, help allay some anxieties about um, where this is all going. I think this will give us much more information in terms of, of uh, those that might be asymptomatic or those that are symptomatic. And although it's, it's really sort of just in, in its infancy right now, I think that it will be very helpful. And it just sort of illustrates how fast we're moving along. Two weeks ago, we were just begging for testing sites, and it was very, very difficult to get testing. And now we're having many more platforms, both in the hospital and uh, available to the public. So I think it will be of great uh, help There are some issues in terms of following up on the test results and gathering the epidemiologic information, but I think overall it's a very, very positive move. Has the delay in getting results, has has that um, largely gone away, or are there still some of the the, uh, test sites that are taking a while? Well, there's still some that take a while, and I think each time you make a change in how you do testing and the availability of testing, and certainly the volume of testing, that may impact a little bit um, of the delay time between testing and results. But for the most part, most of the uh, outside laboratories that are doing it, and we also now are doing it in-house in, at Huntington Hospital, as are many hospitals, uh, that, that time has really diminished. So we can get results back in as little as two or three hours uh, if we need to. Those tests are a little bit more in short supply, but the general public even, it's usually between 12 and 24 hours before results. And uh, protective gear for your hospital employees there, um, face masks, surgical masks, does pretty much everybody have one now? Well, yes. I mean, that's always an ongoing uh, concern because we haven't really gotten to the point where we're going to, you know, really have to ramp up uh, the amount of uh patients that we're going to be seeing. I think it's been a sort of a slow, steady increase. Um, but I think that right now we've mandated that everyone wear a, a mask in the hospital now. Not so much. Um, it's really in response to the fact that we know the virus is, is circulating in the community. So there's a certain point where you do different stages. At first, you may not need to use a mask. And then as, as the virus becomes much more common and the likelihood you're going to encounter somebody with the virus increases, then we finally got to the stage that everybody who's at the hospital uh, must wear a mask. And then, of course, we have higher levels of protective gear for dealing with patients that have actual disease. Uh, N95 masks and and uh, full body covering, that sort of thing? That's right, yeah. Okay. still a very precious commodity, but we have... Uh, uh, we have enough right now to handle what we're doing, and those are for the, the healthcare workers that are actually dealing with these patients. We're talking with Huntington Hospital infectious disease specialist, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. Uh, do you have a sense of what your ICU uh, census is looking like? 
It's pretty full. Um, we still have some patients that, that uh, don't have a coronavirus. You know, we still are a functioning hospital, and so we're taking care of trauma patients and patients that are critically ill uh, who thankfully have not become infected with the virus. Uh, we have those patients separated from the coronavirus uh, patients. Um, but we have contingency plans for expanding our ICU within the facility itself, and hopefully we won't have to go beyond that, but we also have plans for that as well if we need to. I think the big rate-limiting factor for all intensive care units throughout the world, frankly, are ventilators. And right now we, we certainly have um, enough to cover uh, things if it increases substantially, but if we get overwhelmed, then that could be a whole different story. When you look at the figures in Los Angeles County, you look at what's happening in New York City, are you taking any solace in what appears to be the slowing of the rate of increase? I would very much like to, and I'm cautiously, very cautiously optimistic, but we don't want to be too cavalier about this because there's there's several factors here. I mean, certainly Los Angeles doesn't have the intense density of population that a city like New York has, and that may uh, have helped us even before we instituted social distancing. But I, I applaud Governor Newsom and Mayor Garcetti for doing that very early. I think that is really showing the benefits of that right now, and it's a very simple uh, very old-fashioned epidemiologic tool, but it works. And so I certainly would uh, agree with them that we need to continue to emphasize these are the critical two or three weeks that we're now entering, and it is absolutely imperative that people not make any trips outside their home if they don't have to, and just to stay put until we kind of ride over the wave here. So you uh, you agree with um, Dr. Barbara Ferrer, uh, Director of Public Health for L.A. County, that uh, best for people to even avoid grocery shopping this week because this week is so critical? Absolutely. Absolutely. And Dr. Ferrer, I really applaud her. She's I've, I've heard her on your show, and she's just been fantastic and very sensible and, and uh, easy to understand, and I think she's giving exactly the right direction. This is kind of the next... Two weeks, 10 days to two weeks are really the critical period, and it's just so very important that people not go out and infect other people. We're talking with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Huntington Hospital, Pasadena Infectious Disease Specialist. She's our expert today, taking your calls at 866-893-KPCC. Already have a number of listener questions, which I'll uh, share with her when we come back. I just want to take a moment, though, to thank you for the tremendous outpouring of support uh, that we've been receiving from listeners like you as we're working under a very different circumstance than the past with uh, much of our team working from home and all of us trying to pull together to put on uh, the most useful program we can every day. We just thank you for your support. It means a great deal. We'll continue with more conversation in 90 seconds on Air Talk. Coming up next hour on Air Talk, Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva is with me. We're going to talk about a number of important issues. We've talked a lot about homeless Angelinos, their vulnerability to COVID-19. Uh, there's another highly vulnerable population, and that's those that are in jail in Los Angeles County facilities. We'll talk with the sheriff about what measures are being taken to try and protect inmates as well as uh, deputies who are working in those facilities, other staff members, health care providers in, in the jails. Uh, it's a huge operation, thousands of inmates in the county. And uh, obviously, 
the potential for the pandemic to have a huge effect in those kinds of institutional settings. So just one of the topics we'll take up with the sheriff next hour on Air Talk. Right now, we're talking with Huntington Hospital Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. Let's talk with Sarah in Santa Monica. You're on Air Talk. Hi, thanks for taking the call. Sustaining member here. Appreciate it. <laughs> I wanted to know, I live alone. I'm over 65. I live in a building that has 10 units. Basically, we've got maybe 14, 15 people all told living here. We've got a laundry room. We've got a trash area out back. We each have front and back door entrances. Every time I go out to drop off the trash, to go into the laundry room, just to go, just to open my front door, step out onto the stoop, do I have to come back in and wash my hands and wipe down the bottoms of my shoes? Is that necessary? Sarah, you sound so youthful for someone over 65. Our producer Fiona knows that. I did, too. I appreciate the call. So does she have to go to those lengths every time she steps outside, Dr. Schreiner? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think that it is prudent during these times to be extra cautious. And just even thinking, if you think I should wash my hands, go wash your hands. Um, it's. I think it is helpful because that is a very... A well-recognized modality of transmission if you happen to touch something that may have some active virus on it. You know, the truth is, is that most of the time this virus is spread through respiratory droplets from one person to another, uh, but there are contact transmissions that can occur. You know, washing your shoes off, what might be reasonable is just keep a pair of shoes just outside your door if you can, and that's the pair that you wear around outside, and then once in a while just uh, wash them down if you can. Uh, that's certainly what I do when I come home from the hospital is I take my shoes off before I enter the house and then I uh, clean them later. So I think that it's it's prudent. It's probably extra precaution, precaution, but, you know, these are desperate times, and so we have to do desperate things, and I think you're right on, on uh, target by doing those things. All right, Sarah, thanks so much. Uh, Anna Lee in South Pasadena, I understand you've, your father is uh, in an uh, ICU unit with coronavirus? Yeah, that's correct. My 80-year-old father has been hospitalized for the last 11 days. And uh, thank goodness he is improving uh, and is taking less oxygen. And my question for Dr. Schreiner is about post-acute care for these patients. He might likely be released on oxygen and, you know, our family is preparing for this. He lives with my 79-year-old mother, uh, and I'm just wondering what suggestions you have. I've been told that he will still be COVID-19 positive when he's released, and what can our family do to protect my mother and to keep our his home safe? Great. Great question, Dr. Schreiner. Those are very good questions, Anna, and I think that, um, you know, this is the situation is that we have to, we do have to discharge patients, even though they're probably still positive. We don't wait for a negative test because, of course, we need those beds, and that's such a critical factor in keeping the healthcare systems functional. But it is an anxiety for families when they take uh, family members home. So what we recommend is they continue to self-isolate as best you can. Um, you know, if he has a place where he can be and be separated from the rest of your family, especially uh, from his wife, although that seems a rather sad thing to do right now, but certainly important, at least for the next 10 to 14 days after he comes home. Um, and um, when people are tending to him and you need to bring things to him or take care of him, it's probably prudent to, if you can, wear a mask and, and gloves, um, if you can, it's, or if you can't wear gloves, then certainly wash your hands very well and try to keep 
uh, everything as clean as possible and his contact with the rest of the family to a minimum, at least for the next 10 to 14 days. After yeah. that, uh, as he continues to improve, uh, we feel that probably the infectious risk of people is less. We're not really entirely certain what that period of time is. We think it's mostly around 14 to 14 days, but there have been um, some studies that have looked at the persistent virus counts in people as, as long as 21 days after uh, the symptoms resolve. Um, whether they're still infectious or not is a different question because we don't know if you have low levels of virus if you're still an infectious uh, person. But um, I think it is it is very difficult for families that maybe have minimal amounts of space in their house, but the, the best you could do to keep him isolated from the rest of the family for the next 10 to 14 days is, is really critical. Uh, this is not an option, obviously, for many families and undoubtedly the majority of people. But if Annalie's family had the financial means that they could have someone come in during the day for the next several days to be the interface with Annalie's father to keep uh, Annalie's mother more protected, would that be worthwhile? Or does that, in bringing an outside person into the home, create more risk? Uh, it, it could do either. I mean, it's certainly always helpful to have, uh, you know, home health. We do that in normal circumstances when we have elderly parents or people that have, you know, high acuity problems. And it's at the home health services we have available to us are just terrific, and they often have just fantastic nurses uh, and social workers to help with those sort of situations. But it does introduce another person, and so uh, there is that factor. Now, most of those agencies are very meticulous, and they're very much aware of what's going on right now. So. Uh, if it was a need that was really required uh, to maintain his health and keep him out of the hospital for a second time, then I would say it might be worth it. But you really have to weigh the pros and cons yeah. of bringing another person. In. I guess I'm trying to think of keeping her mother safe, who's 79, is sort of... Yeah, the main uh, thing is just to really keep them away from each other for the time being. I know that sounds terrible, but they can Facebook or FaceTime or talk through the door or... Uh, or whatever, but I think it's just important that they not, uh, while he's potentially still infectious, really stay away from. We're talking with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Lynn in Los Alamitos has a good question. Her mother lives in a large assisted living facility near where she lives in Stanton. And at the facility, they're doing temperature taking each day for every one of the residents. And Lynn wonders... Does that introduce additional risk of her mother being exposed to COVID-19 in that different people are coming in to her? It sounds like she's living independently. So different people coming into her unit and taking her temperature every day. Well, it's, it's sort of the same situation is that anytime you introduce another person, especially if it's not the same person, um, each each person that comes in, you don't know who their contacts have been. And because we do know this virus can uh, be uh, harbored in people that aren't symptomatic, we, we really don't know. And I'm hoping that that person who's coming in is wearing a mask and keeping as much distance from these people as possible. You can take a temperature now without touching people. And um, so that would diminish the risk quite a bit. Um, the value of temperature taking is always a little bit unclear because, of course, people's fevers go up and down, and sometimes they take Tylenol, and we also know that people don't always have a fever with this disease. So it isn't an absolute. But, again, the more people you introduce into facilities that, with, that have high-risk individuals, the more chance there is that they're going to finally encounter somebody who actually is infected. Denise uh, in Crenshaw Manor, southwest Los Angeles, 
ask, why is this week and next week so critical, given that we've been sheltering in place for a few weeks now? Because if you look at these statistics, um, they are increasing in Los Angeles, and um, they thankfully are not doing the same uh, rate of increase that the in highly dense areas like New York City. Uh, but it is definitely increasing. And the more you have, more virus you actually have circulating in the population, uh, the more likely it is that, that transmission is going to occur. And again, sort of a, an analogy that I used a few days ago is that sort of like fleas on a dog. If, if the dogs are far enough apart, the fleas can't jump from one dog to the next. And when you have a high amount of people that uh, might be infected because the virus has had a chance to circulate in that population, which it's been doing probably for the last month or so, uh, then the risk of infecting other people is so much higher. So as we approach this surge, you see this pattern over and over again. We saw it in China. We've certainly seen it in Italy in a very dramatic way. And we're actually seeing it in New York, where you start beginning to see the number of deaths go down and then eventually beginning to see the number of infections go down. That's classic for these kind of pandemics. Uh, so we are kind of on the upswing of the surge right now. And it usually lasts anywhere from, you know, the actual surge anywhere from two to four weeks uh, because we have a slower uptick and we've been doing social distancing, that might be a longer period of time, but it's just so very critical that right now when there's quite a bit of virus circulating, that we stop it by, by social distancing. We'll continue our conversation with Huntington Hospital Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. Kimberly Schreiner uh, joining us from... Uh, just around the corner from our Pasadena studios. Uh, so glad to have her expertise with us. We have many more calls coming up, uh, including one from Deborah uh, listening up in Monterey. Uh, she's going to ask about masks. We'll get some more details on that. We have other excellent questions to ask Dr. Schreiner. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Back in one minute. can't tell you how otherworldly it is to look across the glass in the opposite connected side of our studio and to be looking at Parker McDaniel, our engineer with his surgical mask on, Fiona Ng, who's line producing her surgical mask on. To her left, um, they're screening phone calls, doing social media, our news apprentices, uh, Sabrina Fang, Julia Murray, also masked up. It's just, it's odd. Obviously, I can't be. Plus, I'm sitting by myself. No one comes into this studio where I'm at each day. Studio A is is uh, just totally set up for one person. Um, and when I step out, I have my mask off, whether I'm going to the restroom or uh, going to my car to and from. It's just otherworldly. And if you're someone who is providing what's determined to be an essential service, I'm sure you're seeing that too. Hospitals, um, less odd to see that, but in a typical workplace, definitely a different feel to it. We're talking with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Huntington Hospital, Pasadena, infectious disease specialist. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Deborah joins us from beautiful Monterey. Deborah, thank you. Go right ahead with your question. Hi. Um, I was, I'm a little confused as to the protection that's afforded by an ordinary mask. It seems like um, we're now hearing that the mask 
prevents the wearer from becoming infected. And my understanding has been that actually it doesn't do that, but it protects other people from the wearer if the wearer happens to be infected. So I think that needs clarification. All right. Me, if I go out, or does it only protect whoever I encounter from me? Very good. Deborah, thank you so much. Dr. Schreiner? Well, Deborah, you're actually, you're absolutely right. Really, the main function of the masks is to protect you or to protect other people from you. Um, most of the masks that people use out in uh, the non-hospital setting are surgical masks or the cloth, ma- uh, cloth masks that many people are using now. And basically what those do is serve as a barrier uh, from mucus that you might uh, have uh, in you um, uh, when you're talking or coughing or sneezing around other people. And we, of course, want everybody to try not to cough and sneeze around other people if possible. But um, we know that mucus comes comes out even when you speak and when you sing and when you exhale. So that really is that you're absolutely right. The barrier is more to protect other people from your mucus. It does serve a little bit of a barrier from uh, for other people. I mean... Uh, it is, you know, it certainly diminishes the amount of uh, actual droplets that might uh, get into your own mucous membranes. But those type of masks tend not to be as effective as, for example, an N95 mask in providing that kind of protection. Uh, let's see. Uh, we have Glenn asks on the page, what are the odds that life might return largely to normal by fall, including schools being able to open for normal sessions? Or is it more likely that social separation may have to go on for a year or so, or perhaps come and go in periodic waves? That's the million-dollar question, is when does life go back to normal? Um, I think I think we're going to have a new normal. I think that this, hopefully this pandemic, the good things that will come out of it are that we learn how important it is to prepare for an event like this. This will not be the last pandemic. These are going to become much more common, I think, uh, as, again, we have more encounters with viruses that our species has never seen before. Um, I think that um, we will be able to learn how to uh, understand what kind of uh, measures are effective. We certainly know that social distancing is effective. We may have uh, by the fall, hopefully we might have a good grasp on some therapeutic interventions, uh, whether it's neutralizing antibodies or uh, some of the medications that are being looked at, antivirals that are being uh, evaluated. And we might even have the beginnings of some vaccine trials at that point to sort of help us uh, ease some of the burden of the disease um, in the populations. But I think that it is important to be very cautious. These type of viruses, coronaviruses, tend to be cyclical. This happened with the first SARS outbreak. It was not nearly as spread out through the globe as this this one, but it did recur a little bit in late August and September and then finally disappeared. Um, So I think there's lots of things that can happen also by the fall is that the herd, and we are the herd, will become much more immune. And so, again, there won't be many uh, uh, sort of non-immune hosts for the virus to interact with. But I think we need to pay attention to what this is doing to our life and our economy and our society and our planet and hopefully learn from that and and uh, that will help us deal with the next pandemic that will come along. Melissa in Adelanto in the high desert asks, uh, says her husband has a colonoscopy scheduled next week. Should we reschedule? I assume I, I'm assuming that's a routine colonoscopy, um, but it might be different advice if if he'd had an occult blood test that was positive. What do you think, doctor? Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Larry. I think we want people, anything that's that's entirely elective that really isn't going to be a life 
a saving intervention or a di- of, of great critical diagnostic importance, those should be postponed for as long as possible. You know, but sometimes somebody has, as you mentioned, they have a reason that they need to have the colonoscopy done. There's a concern for cancer. Uh, those are not things that we want to postpone, and I would think that their gastroenterologist would be prepared to deal with uh, with a patient that you know may or may not be exposed to coronavirus. Uh, we certainly are doing that with our with most of our surgeries. The elective, the truly elective surgeries have been postponed at Huntington, but we still continue to do many surgeries for patients that just really can't wait. Deanna in El Sereno says, I have the symptoms. I talked with my doctor who put me on 14-day quarantine. I was tested. Results came negative, but I'm still sick. My daughter is starting to show the symptoms too. Are false negatives possible? You know, this is a concern that we've had. I just was talking to some physicians about this earlier this morning, is that these tests are, are quite good, the nasopharyngeal swab. If they're done properly and the materials collected properly, they're, they're about 98% accurate. Um, there are problems sometimes with collection, and sometimes the specimen can be mishandled so that the test may be falsely negative. But um, chances are that the, the caller um, probably has another virus. This, of course, we're still in the middle of the sort of the end tail end of the flu season and some of the other viruses like human metanumavirus or rhinovirus, and those are still circulating. I hope that those actually will begin to fade a little faster, too, because of social distancing. But if the test is negative, it probably means you're not infected with coronavirus. There really, it isn't that common. Very high suspicion cases we will retest, and sometimes, as I said, if the sample's not collected properly, it may be falsely negative. But um, to continue to get retesting is problematic because the tests are a pretty precious resource. Thank you so much, Dr. Schreiner. Wonderful to have you with us again today on Air Talk. Pleasure, Larry. Thank you. Infectious disease specialist at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, with us. We have much more to come in the second hour of Air Talk. I'll tell you about it in about a minute. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Each day we try and find something a, a little bit lighter, the lighter side of COVID-19 that has to do with us living our lives almost exclusively at home these days. And coming up later this hour, that takes the form of what's happening in our kitchens. So pleased to bring back together uh, both of them, former Los Angeles Times uh, staffers, Noel Carter, who ran the test kitchen at the Times for many years, and Russ Parsons, who was the food editor and food columnist for the Times for many years. Uh, Russ now living in Ireland, and Noel, who's writing for other sites. They're going to be back with us today coming up uh, in our second half hour to talk about... If you're a reluctant cook, things you might have in your pantry and your refrigerator that you can use to make uh, beyond run-of-the-mill kinds of meals. Chance for you to ask cooking questions of them, and uh, they'll offer some creative advice of doing things that aren't overwhelmingly difficult, but uh, that would allow you to take advantage of some of the staples that you've probably got around the house. But we begin the hour with the sheriff of Los Angeles County, Alex Villanueva. We have much to talk with him about. Sheriff Villanueva, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Larry. Let's start first with the health of your deputies and other staff members of the sheriff's department. Uh, how many COVID-19 cases do you have so far? 
So far we have 24 that have tested positively. We have three that are in ICU, but two of them are on their way out of ICU, thank God. So that leaves us only one in ICU. 394 in quarantine and 150 have left quarantine or back in service. So, uh, wow, close to 400 who were quarantined. Uh, your department's obviously, you know, huge. Uh, you've got, what, close to 10,000 personnel. So, but is that is that still, um, is this causing a problem at all with how you're staffing the shifts? Well, it's actually, we have 18,000 employees, and it's, it's split about 10,000 sworn and uh, about 8,000 of our professional staff. So it's 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 spread throughout uh, all of our facilities and all of our different uh, activities that we're doing out there. Is is it causing any delays with any sorts of uh, processes by the department? Uh, no, not at all. Actually, it's because we've uh, we've shut down a lot of non-essential things that are not related uh, to the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic. So we're concentrating our efforts on patrol and custody operations. So we have sufficient personnel right now. The Riverside County Sheriff's Department has lost two of its members uh, to COVID-19 and uh, our, our sympathies to uh, that uh, that agency. Have you changed uh, protocols for your deputies, particularly who are on the front lines uh, with masks, sanitizer and the like? Yes, we've already introduced, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, policies that we're changing. We're screening calls so we know what we're going to expect before we get there. And like if we're going to a house that has a quarantine already or someone's tested positive, we want to know that before we, we stick our neck in there. So then we have our personnel. They are all equipped with a, a personal protective equipment, including the N95 mask, if they need to go into a place where there is known exposure. And we're um, effective this Sunday. Then we're going to have all of our personnel on the line and patrol and custody are going to be fully masked up um, as a, just a normal course of business. Really? So they'll all be wearing surgical-style masks just uh, as they walk around? Yeah, that is correct. Okay. Uh, if you have questions for Sheriff Villanueva about COVID-19 and the operations of the Sheriff's Department, we're at 866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722. Uh, there was some concern uh, several days ago about your personnel who had been put on uh, self-isolation because of concerns they might be COVID-19 positive and whether they were going to get the back pay for doing that. Has that been resolved? That has been resolved, yes. It took a little bit of of effort, but we got the issue resolved, and it stemmed from a, there's a unified coordination group meeting every morning. It's a conference call, obviously, with all the the major players in in the pandemic. And the, on April 1st, the question was brought up actually by myself and also County Fire about uh, the pay for those in the month of March. Not the month of April 1st going forward because the federal government had enacted that legislation that allowed for 80 hours of, of pay coverage. But our concern was about what happened to those that were in quarantine since the beginning of March and retroactive pay. And that uh, we... You know, we did our homework. Uh, we asked uh, Sachi Hamai, the CEO, about that issue right there, and she said it was not retroactive. It only applied April 1st going forward. And then the question, I asked the question, what about the month of March? And then she said, well, you have to refer to each individual's own uh, time, their own individual time for that. And that's what raised the entire problem, like, whoa, what about if it's a new employee that doesn't have time on the books? 
and that's what created the whole brouhaha. But okay, yeah, because because um, she was uh, took offense in the way that uh, you approached uh, her office uh, about those funds. So, do, were you able to go to your own budget to come up with that that sick time to cover those folks? Well, we had to do the research, but uh, sadly, we were expecting the HR expert to clarify that right then there, hey, not to worry, you can use administrative leave and you can apply it retroactively. That ended the entire thing even before it started. But we had to unfortunately find that out on our own because uh, that information wasn't provided. All right. So so those people are now whole? Yeah, every everyone is whole moving forward. Our only concern is going to be that it's 30 days the administrative leave and now the question is what happened if someone is unlucky enough to get stuck in several quarantines as a result of their job? But we're hopefully no one's ever put in that position. We're talking with Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. If you have questions for him about law enforcement in this era of COVID-19, we're at 866-893-KPECC. Has your department been called on at all in an enforcement role for the public health measures that are that are uh, ongoing? Uh, we've received uh, communications uh, from uh, the County Emergency Operations Center about what to do in the event someone wants to walk away from a quarantine and wants to uh, deliberately you know, infect other people, particularly those that are maybe suffering from some mental illness and they also happen to be uh, COVID-19 positive in a quarantine if they want to walk away. That, well, that, then that actually goes from just a strictly health problem to a law enforcement problem. And, of course, we're always going to be available to respond to that we just got to make sure that there's enough resources to handle things at a lower level prior to it escalates to that point. Have you been called on at all in unincorporated or sheriff service areas uh, to go and be the hammer to close non-essential businesses that stayed open? Yes, we have had that. That has happened particularly in the state of industry with uh, certain businesses uh, that were in operation you know, against the health orders. And also, I think in uh, Malibu, we actually cited a paddleboarder who was flouting uh, the the closure of the beaches. City of Industry, what kinds of businesses were, were flouting the closure orders? Uh, apparently uh, uh, strip joints. Ah, okay. All right, not observing physical distance. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org, strip clubs deemed as non-essential, 866 5722. The jails, of course, uh, a place of great concern because of the concentration of thousands of individuals in various stages of health, physical and mental health, not to mention all your personnel who are in close contact with inmates. So what measures have you been able to take at Central Jail and elsewhere? Oh, well, we, we um, actually started way before in February when we knew we could see the tsunami on the horizon. We had to depopulate or decompress our overcrowded jail conditions to be able to be in a position to defend the population from the virus. So we decided a, a deliberate process of, of releasing inmates that were had 30 days or less on their sentence, those who had compromised uh, systems, health reasons above the age of 60, for example, uh, pregnant female inmates, and then we're working on pretrial detainees those with the lowest amount of bail, and we're working with a very, we have a very good working group with uh, our criminal justice partners from the uh, the Honorable uh, Kevin Brazil, the presiding judge of the Superior Court System, Sam Moda, 
uh, oversees a criminal courts division, and then the district attorney's office, the public defender's office, the alternative public defenders, and the court administration. We've been working hard to figure out how to uh, safely balance the need to decompress the size of the population versus the threat to the community by releasing people. So the serious, serious violent offenders will remain incarcerated, but we've been able to safely decompress it now by roughly 20%. And uh, I saw, I think it was the Judicial Council, um, relaxed rules about bail, so it's going to be zero bail in most cases. So uh, do you have a sense how many people are now coming into the jail, or is it too soon to tell under the new rules? Uh, The very new rules is too soon to tell, but early on we started restricting who was coming in because I raised the minimum bail amount from 25000 to 50000 so that started restricting people coming in, so they were getting cited out more frequently in the field by police departments and sheriff stations. And at the same time, people were starting to get more uh, scrutinized and need to arrest someone. So that helped on, on that side. So the, we were averaging roughly 300 inmates a day being booked into the system. That's dropped to about 60 a day. So you can see now the inflow has been reduced. The uh, exodus has increased, so that's why we were able to reduce the population safely. Margaret in Newport Beach says, uh, I have an acquaintance who's a prison guard. They say they haven't received protective equipment or been given guidance on how to practice proper physical distancing in the prisons. I'm assuming her friend is at a state facility. So she wonders what's being done to protect your deputies and others uh, who are custodial staff. All of our personnel are equipped with uh, personal protective equipment. All of the places within the jail system that are on quarantine, uh, that are locked down, no one can enter without the the protective gear, for example. And now, as of Sunday, we're going to go up, or everyone is going to be masked up, either in custody and in patrol, throughout the entire jail system. And I'm hoping the prison system catches up to what we're doing, but those are the best practices that we have available. We have sanitation. We have the the... The hand sanitizer everywhere. We have extra crews, cleaning crews that are going through all the common areas and sanitizing all the surfaces, and they're doing this shift after shift. So we're definitely stepping up that. And then, of course, we're giving information to the inmates about personal hygiene and to practice it safely. Sheriff Villanueva, with all the people that you're releasing, are you able to monitor if it calls for it in those cases, ankle monitoring or other things, or are they just out um, essentially on their own? Well, there we're releasing people that are already at the short end of their sentence, so there's no monitoring at, at that point. We also have people that are in for a technical parole and probation violation. We're working with the probation department, and we want to increase the number of people that are released with the ankle monitors because, that again, that helps us to decompress the amount of people inside the jail system. But that that resource is kind of limited in comparison to the overall size of the system. I think 20% of New York City's police department uh, are out because of concerns about symptoms of COVID-19. Is that just just because so many of them um, walk in beats on the street? Is is that the issue there? Or what's your, your sense of why... L.A. County sheriffs and LAPD aren't seeing rates like that of absenteeism. Well, their uh, their uh, infection rate, they were way ahead of the curve compared to us because they started far earlier in the process than we are. 
Lord willing, we won't get to the position they are, but we have uh, plans in place for mass casualties and how to carry on our operation, what they call continuity of operations, based on a 20% reduction, 25%, even all the way up to 50% loss of availability of personnel at any one time, and we can continue to carry on what we're doing. All right. L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. I wonder also about um, enforcing... Uh, you know, people being told to stay at home. Are are you in a position that if an order was given that people under force of law have to stay at home, that the sheriff's department in its enforcement areas could actually enforce something like that to to keep otherwise, you know, healthy asymptomatic people in their homes? Uh, we would be in the position to have to enforce it, but we don't want to be position. Thankfully, 98, 99% of the population is complying with the health orders, so they leave the house only for essential business, and we want to keep it that way. I think overall, our entire community is doing a wonderful job of really adhering to it, and sometimes it really, it doesn't take the strong arm of the law. All you have to do is look at the body count and realize the threat is real, so proceed at your own risk. You ordered that uh, all gun stores uh, in the county area be closed as non-essential. What's been your rate of compliance? Well, we had a, we had them closed initially. We uh, didn't do any enforcement, active enforcement. You know, ordering people to close. We put that as a, as part of the guidelines from the health officer. Our interpretation of it. However, then the federal government they issued an, an updated and revised guidelines that more clarified the position of gun stores, that they were deemed to be uh, essential. And uh, so we were kind of like left in limbo. Well, if they're deemed to be essential by the federal government, then we're not going to touch that one. Okay. So they can still operate at this point. They could still operate. However, now uh, two different federal judges have intervened on two cases, one from L.A. where I'm listed as a defendant and one from Ventura County, and both federal judges have ruled in favor of continuing the ban. So that kind of puts that whole process in limbo. All right. When we come back, we'll talk about overall crime trends in L.A. County Sheriff's uh, Department territory. We're at 866-893-KPECC. The Sheriff of Los Angeles County, Alex Villanueva, is with us. Coming up in just about 10 minutes or so, we're going to have two experts talking with us about how you take staples out of your pantry and do creative and interesting meals. If you've been a reluctant cook and uh, ate out perhaps more than ate at home or uh, just weren't particularly creative but now looking uh, for things to do, maybe got the time to experiment, we've got two experts, Nicole Carter, uh, Noel Carter, excuse me, and uh, Russ Parsons will be joining us. That's coming up in a few minutes. Back with more from the sheriff in just 60 seconds. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. 
Governor Gavin Newsom's daily news conference comes your way shortly after noon here on 89.3. And then the governor will be talking to Southern Californians exclusively on Take Two with A. Martinez at 2 o'clock this afternoon. So Governor Newsom with us twice here on 89.3 KPECC. Right now, we're talking with Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. If you have questions for him about county law enforcement and COVID-19, we're at 866-893-KPECC. Just go back to the gun store issue just briefly. Uh, So, Sheriff, given that Ventura County court upholding the closure order there, are you looking at reissuing the closure order here uh, it's not necessary. I think people are going to be responsible. And to be honest, I think that the COVID-19 is going to be the one dictating what stays open and what closes. And uh, that that's our focus. So okay. Right now, any, any store that is deemed essential that's complying with all the health orders and social distancing, we're not even bothering with them. Those that are not complying, we're, we're creating a nuisance or a congregation of people. Well, then we're going to have to intervene at that point. What's going on with uh, crime in Los Angeles County with everybody staying home? How's that affecting crime? Well, it's affecting in different ways. People say, oh, my God, you drop you. You release that many people from from the, the jails and crime would go up. But crime is actually trending downward and very noticeably in just a two week span alone from the beginning of March to the end of March, comparing the first two weeks to the last two weeks of March. Six and a half percent drop of all crimes across the board, which is astonishing for such a short period of time. And if you compare it to last year, you're looking at drops of 20, 25, almost 30 percent. So that's a a very positive because remember, everybody's at home now. There's a lot more uh, people available home to deconflict issues. There's a lot more witnesses. So there's ways to to deconflict things that normally would have occurred where a victim is going to report a crime, for example, domestic violence to the police. And it was just them and the, the assailant. Now there's a whole family involved. So there's some pressures that alleviates that part. Also, less people on the streets that are subject to being robbed or being victims of crime on the street. So a lot of patterns are being altered because of the COVID-19. I was wondering about uh, business burglaries, though, because you've got so many vacant storefronts. Have those increased? Um, to date, No. And what we did is uh, we have extra personnel now in patrol. In fact, we increased our patrolling by probably close to 300%. And we're, one of our focuses is not just the places where people are gathering, for example, in the shopping areas and the big box retailers. We're also focusing on the areas that are now locked up and closed because of the opportunists. Are gonna, they're going to try to take advantage of that. Well, we're just waiting for them. All right. Um, also, I wanted to go back something uh, quite a few minutes ago. We were talking about, um, you know, not taking people into custody for lower level offenses. Uh, you'd said that deputies would cite and release people if the bail was lower than the $50,000 threshold. Um, but there have been reports that deputies have still been bringing in people for those lower level crimes. Can you clarify that? They're, um, they might actually arrest somebody in the, in, the, in the streets, bring them into the station. They're going to cite and release them at the station after booking them into the system. And, of course, a domestic violence, for example, any violent uh, felony is going to be arrested and booked into the system, and they'll be transported into the jail system, those that pose a, a physical threat to the community. And then 
just because we're in this situation doesn't mean that we cease to enforce the laws. We're just doing a different way about whether or not we uh, put someone into the jail system or not. But we still go through. We make the report. It's going to be assigned to a detective. They're going to do their investigation. They're going to present the case to the district attorney for filing consideration. All those processes are going on. What uh, what sorts of scam reports have been predominating in the past couple of weeks? Well, scammers are never one to miss a beat. Right away, as soon as the pandemic started altering our, our life, now we have the phone scams. People are trying to say that they're representing the CDC or you tested positive. People are trying to sell fake uh, testing equipment, for example, or uh, things that are a cure COVID-19, you have all these different scams at different levels. And you have all the Internet scams, the phishing attempts, the threatening stuff that is, is still out there. There are people are, uh, you know, naive and susceptible to it. Just people need to remember the, the federal, the state, local government, we are not going to ask for any of your private information via a phone call, via the Internet. It's just not going to happen. We do our business in person with real identification if it needs to be or it's going to be through uh, through certified mail. Sheriff Villanueva, we have a, a caller, Catherine, in Santa Monica. Uh, what's being done with uh, domestic violence, uh, child abuse cases? Because as you mentioned, with people at home, and you have kids, for example, not going into school where teachers or other staff members might notice something amiss with a child who's been harmed. Domestic violence where you don't have a spouse uh, or partner who's maybe out in the world uh, who could confide as easily in a friend of abuse happening at home. Is there a role for the sheriff's department in um, going beyond previous measures because of the difficulty of uncovering this kind of abuse? Uh, there's a role we can always play. As, as first responders, whenever there's a 911 call, for example, there's a, a, a form called SCARS, Suspected Child Abuse re- re- Reporting System. And a SCARS report is generated, and the uh, Department of Children and Family Services, they put that in, information in the system. Our department does. All the ones that are obligated, mandatory reporters. Of course, now that the schools are closed, we lost a lot of those eyes. You're very correct. However, that still doesn't lessen our obligation to go out there, make that preliminary investigation, talk to all of the victims or the witnesses, separate the parties to try to figure out what happened, and then now this is something we can do. We have more resources out there in the field now. So we can go back. We can go back a few days later, a week later, after there was a call to see how is everything going on. Uh, social workers are still out there. They're working. They can also do that follow-up uh, call just to find out if everything's going all right. Sheriff Villanueva, thank you very much for spending this half hour with us today. I look forward to talking with you next time. Thanks very much. Uh, you got it, Larry. Thanks so much. L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva with us on Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Coming up, we're going to talk about advice from a pair of experts. We reunite them here on Air Talk on KPCC. They were colleagues for years working together at the Los Angeles Times. And uh, my pleasure to have them back to answer your questions about uh, the best recipes, ways of taking staples from your pantry and turning them into something uh, more than just the, um, the sort of run-of-the-mill meal. It's Air Talk on KPCC. Well, one of the ways in which life has changed dramatically in the era of COVID-19 is so many people 
eating at home uh, and trying to put together meals, uh, often three of them a day, in a way that they wouldn't have been when they're out working or going to school. All that meal planning, execution, uh, the shopping that undergirds that is new for many, many families and households. So we wanted to bring back together uh, two food experts who regularly joined us on Air Talk, particularly around holiday season, to answer your questions, but this time to talk about the questions you might have about meal prep at home. With us is Noelle Carter, who directed the Los Angeles Times Test Kitchen for many years. She's uh, now uh, has her own website, which shares recipes, cooking techniques, kitchen tips for the home cook. It's Noelle Carter Food, uh, and she's chef, food writer, and culinary consultant. Also with us, a former food editor and columnist for the Los Angeles Times for more than two decades, a cookbook author of How to Pick a Peach, How to Read a French Fry, Russ Parsons. Russ and Noelle, great to have you back together with us. It's great to be with you, Larry. So nice. Uh, so, uh, well, let's get right to the listener questions. Let me put the phone number out, 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722 or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. So this is an opportunity for you to share. Maybe you've got some staple items. You're trying to think of creative ways of combining them. You're you're getting bogged down in sort of go-to dishes, and you're sick of them. You want some advice on how to do something different. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Uh, Russ, you're living now in Ireland. How, how are uh, the Irish responding to this? Um, it's a little embarrassing looking at what's happening, uh, what's happening in the United States from here. We're, in Ireland, the prime minister is a former uh, general practitioner. And, uh, and so the Irish have taken this very, very seriously right from the very start. And uh, I mean, we've been on lockdown for three weeks. Uh, we live across the street from our kids and grandkids and haven't been able to see them for three weeks. We're not supposed to you know, we're not supposed to, to communicate at all. Um, so they're taking it very, very seriously. Well, and and I think of in Ireland, restaurant culture, public spaces. This is a very social culture. This has to be so difficult for people there. Oh, it, 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 it tears me up every Tuesday night is my night with the lad down at the uh, at, at my local pub. And, and pubs in, in Ireland are not like they're not 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 so much like bars in the United States. They're more like an extension of the living room where everybody gets together. And it, it, it is. It's just a, it's a great communal social culture. And it, it's it, it's a real shock. All right. Uh, so, Noel, with Noel Carter Food, what are some of the questions you're getting to your website that specifically relate to COVID-19 restrictions? You know, it's so funny. Um, I, knowing that this was coming around, my partner and I decided to stock up kind of at the beginning of, of March. And I, I went with a couple of neighbors to our local Smart and Final and another couple of grocery stores. And already people, it seemed like, like rice, dried beans, canned vegetables, and pasta were flying off the shelves. And now that everybody's at home with all of these ingredients, it's like, okay, well, 
how do I, how do I cook them? You know, like I, I was talking with Russa uh, last week about, you know, he did a great column on how to cook dried beans. Do you need to soak them first? You know, just basic cooking questions that, you know, a lot of us that cook for a living may not even think twice about. But if you're only venturing into the kitchen occasionally and now, like you were just saying, you're, cook- you're putting three meals on the table a day, it's like, okay, what do I do with all of these pantry staples and how can I best use them to make the best meals for my family and stretch them so they, you know, they, they, they last the longest? Well, the questions are coming in fast. Let's talk with Robert in West Covina. You're on with Noel and Russ. Yo. Go right ahead, Robert. Oh, we just lost him. Let's talk with Richard in Downey. Richard, you're on Air Talk. Yes. I'm wondering if dried beans used as a weight for a single crust pie can then be used uh, and cooked for another purpose. Russ, you want to take that on? Yeah, I can answer that long, sad experience. Oh. Okay. <laughs> the, um, the, 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 the roasting, the, the baking, in the, in, when you're using it as a blind baking for, for a pie crust, it really, really dries them out. So, no, uh, save those beans uh, and, and continue to use them as, as pie weights. But, but um, if you're going to try and cook them, be prepared to wait a week for dinner. Okay. All right. Richard, sorry about that. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. From Rancho Park in Los Angeles, Tracy, you're on AirTalk. Hi, yeah, my question is, what else can I do with romaine lettuce besides salad? I have three big, beautiful heads of lettuce, and I just don't know how much salad I can really consume. Yeah, well, I, wraps come to mind, but Noel, you have any suggestions? You know, I was going to say wraps are wonderful. Romaine lettuce is a heartier, heartier lettuce, and it can be cooked. And it's actually, if you have access to a grill, um, whether you've got a backyard or a grill pan in the kitchen, um, grill it. It's it's wonderful grilled, and there are a lot of recipes out there. They're kind of salad variations, but uh, the cooking really gives a depth of flavor to the romaine that you don't that you can't enjoy when it's fresh. And also those leftover romaine bits, the root bits at the bottom. If you put those in a glass of water, it will start to sprout new leaves in about a week, and you'll have fresh leaves that you can use. They won't quite make a salad right away, but uh, they make a great garnish or add a little crunch to other dishes. I ne- I didn't realize that. Grow your own romaine. Wow. Um, have Noelle, have, have you had a, a grilled Caesar salad before? I have. Yeah. It's absolutely wonderful. In fact, I think Russ did, a, Russ, didn't you do a grilled romaine? Uh, it was kind of a Caesar salad variation at the times. I think I did. It's, it's so hard to it's hard so hard to keep track. But I was just thinking it, it it cooks much like it becomes just a vegetable in a way when you think of it that way. And so um, uh, grilled romaine with some olive oil, lemon juice, capers. Uh, that, what could be better than that? Yeah, the grilled uh, Caesar that I had it just brought out a whole other uh, aspect of of the leaf. It was just uh, really terrific. We're going to continue with your questions for Noel Carter. Uh, for many years, the director of the Los Angeles Times Test Kitchen, uh, but right now, she's got her website, Noel Carter Food. She's a chef, food writer, and culinary consultant. And Russ Parsons was, for many years, the food editor and columnist for the Los 
Los Angeles Times, author of the cookbooks How to Pick a Peach and How to Read a French Fry. Russ and Noel continue with your calls at 866-893-KPECC. Cooking multiple meals a day at home, using staples, creative new meal ideals. The experts are here for you back in 90 seconds. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Each day we try and find a segment that relates to the new living at home reality that we experience being at home all the time. And uh, certainly meals have been one of the areas most affected by our public health orders as folks try and put together three uh, interesting meals. If not that, maybe one interesting meal a day. And if you're someone who's not been much of a cook, you've been kind of reluctant about it, um, but you now have this new responsibility or maybe even interest, maybe you have the time to do this that you didn't have before when you were working outside your home, uh, it's a great chance for you to ask questions of two uh, great experts. We're pleased to have with us Russ Parsons, who was for many years food editor and columnist for the L.A. Times, and Noelle Carter, who ran the L.A. Times Test Kitchen for many years. Uh, she uh, has now Noelle Carter Food, a website where she answers questions, posts recipes, gives all kinds of tips about food and cooking. 866-893-KPECC. Bobby in Koreatown, you're on Air Talk. Yes, when I couldn't find any pasta or rice, I bought barley. I have never cooked barley. I have a pound of barley, and I just don't know what to do with it. All right, this is a jump ball. I'll throw it up. Noelle or Russ, either of you want to jump in on that? I'm happy to. Uh, to great, Noelle. To answer. Um, barley is one of those great grains that it can be used as soup. In, in a soup, it's a great thickener in soups, but it can also be cooked as a grain on its own. Um, what I like to do is I'll actually toast it a little in a in a dry skillet just to bring out that nutty flavor. Uh, toasting grains and rice and even dried spices really helps to elevate the flavor and deepen the, the flavor of the overall dish. And then, uh, you know, I'll just cook it in plenty of boiling water or broth until uh, it's tender. Depending on the type of barley and the age, um, you know, it can take anywhere from a half an hour to an hour. Um, but, uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful grain. It's versatile. Um, I've used it for everything from, you know, rich, rich, uh, soups and stews to I've, I've even made kind of variations on a breakfast oatmeal, but used barley instead of oatmeal for that. And, uh, it's a lot of fun. Great. Bobby, good luck with that. Thank you for your call. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. You can tweet a question to us at AirTalk. You can post on the AirTalk Facebook page as well. Your question, anything to do with pantry and refrigerator items, creative ways of how to put them together. You can throw out some ingredients. And I know Noel and Russ would be a game to try and give it a shot as to how you might combine combine some of them to do something a bit more original than what you've been doing for the past few weeks. Uh, Parker, our engineer, says this is a good time to plug pantry pasta, anchovies, garlic, and red pepper flakes, uh, fried in olive oil, and add pasta and parmesan. All right. Uh, Russ, what do you think of that? 
Sounds good to me. Yeah, all right. 866. One of the things when you're thinking about pantry items, um, it, it's, impo- it's important to, to kind of understand and take a realistic look at what kind of cook you are first. Um, if, if you're someone like me and, and Noel, for example, who, who really, you know, kind of gravitates towards that, uh, towards a European, French, Italian, um, it kind of that, that's the way we cook naturally, then you're going to have a different, uh, you're going to have a different set of pantry items than someone who, um, who uh, may be cooking more Southeast Asian or Chinese or Japanese. So you know, think a little bit about, um, about how you really want to cook before you think about stocking up. Uh, this is a good time to, to experiment with lots of different flavors. Um, and, and certainly cooking can be, um, uh, can, can be a recreational experience as well. That's, that's fun. But you don't want to be in a position where you're trying a recipe for the first time and all of a sudden you need to run out and find uh, sumac or a specific type of fish sauce <laughs> or something like that. Um, that's going to be difficult these days. So, so know what kind of cook you are and, and, and color within those lines. I appreciate it, although, you know, we've been out of sumac for quite a while now, so you've hit a sore spot. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. And, you you know, don't, uh, I just want to say, don't be shy about asking what may be very basic questions, because that's good, too. You know, if if you're someone who you really haven't cooked much before, and you want to ask about preparation of something that you assume everybody else knows but you don't, you know, uh, you're among friends here. 866-893-KPECC. Patrick in Costa Mesa, your question for uh, Noel and Russ. Yeah, in cooking fish, uh, specifically like sautéing, like say in garlic and olive oil, shrimp, how long? And then cooking a larger fish, like say salmon, like how long, you know, on each side or whatever. Noel? Um, you know, it, it really depends on the type of fish and uh, what parts. Are, are you talking about the whole fish or just fillets? Patrick? About shrimp and then talking about, like, say, uh, salmon or halibut. Like- so they'd be fillets. That, well, okay. Yeah. Unlike other types of meat, fish, all fish, is going to generally cook a lot more quickly than, you know, say, chicken or pork or even beef. Um, shrimp, I actually had that last night. I, uh, 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 did, did a version of, uh, you know, shrimp with, with garlic, olive oil, and then I served it with some homemade bread I'd made. And, uh, that cooked up, oh, maybe three to five minutes. I mean, shrimp will cook up very, very quickly, especially depending on the size. If they're smaller shrimp, they can cook up in just a couple of minutes. You really just want to have the heat gentle with any fish. I tend to cook it at, you know, medium, medium low if I'm doing it on the stovetop. Uh, just until I see it uh, become opaque throughout and it feels firm to the touch. Um, if, I'm un- if I'm new to that type of fish, uh, one great way to check, especially if you're doing, like, say, a salmon fillet or, or another type of fish fillet, go ahead and stick a knife in the middle and make sure that it's done in the center. If it still looks a little raw in the center, you know, Give it a couple more minutes because you don't want to you don't want to undercook it. But uh, fish will cook up relatively quickly. Um, if you're new to fish, uh, especially if you're doing fillets, if you have a nonstick 
skillet. That can be very helpful just because the fish can kind of stick and you're going to want to keep checking on it and you don't want it to stick to the bottom of the pan. Uh, Noelle, as you were describing your meal last night, all of us here before lunchtime are having a very difficult time. Uh, we, we want to do our physical distancing in your kitchen. Thank you. Noelle Carter of Noelle Carter Food, Russ Parsons, uh, for many years, the food editor and columnist of the Los Angeles Times and uh, author of cookbooks, How to Pick a Peach and How to Read a French Fry. Russ, uh, uh, now retired from the Times, living in Ireland, but still joining us from many thousands of miles away. And we appreciate that as well. Your questions about your kitchen and how to do uh, more memorable meals. If you're someone who hasn't cooked a lot, Belinda asks on the Air Talk page, I have a uh, can of tuna, canned corn, canned diced tomatoes, and spaghetti noodles. I have lots of spices and fresh herbs, but no dairy. Any ideas? Russ, do you want to take that one on? Sure. Um, That's something I cook fairly often, actually, without the canned corn. Um, Canned tuna and tomatoes makes a great uh, great, uh, pasta sauce. So, you know, you start out with uh, kind of the, the basic, tomato sauce with uh, minced onions, minced garlic, uh, canned tomatoes, crush them up. Um, and then about five minutes before you're going to serve, add the tomatoes. Now, if you've got some capers, capers are great with that squeeze of lemon, fresh basil. You don't want any dairy with that. You don't because, you know, for an Italian serving cheese with fish, it's just not something that's done. Uh, so and there you are when you uh, after you cook the spaghetti, drain the spaghetti and reserve a little bit of the pasta water. Add the spaghetti to the saucepan, the, the, the pan that you cook the sauce in. Add a little bit of the pasta water, bring it back up to a boil, and that'll marry all of the flavors together. Sounds good. All right. Thanks very much. Belinda, we'll look forward to a report back on how that went. We'll continue with Noel Carter and Russ Parsons taking your questions about using what's in your pantry, what's in your refrigerator to create more interesting meals, particularly as you've been putting together meals uh, two, three times a day at home. 866-893-5722. Back in one minute. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm so happy to have back together former Los Angeles Times food writers and editors uh, Russ Parsons and Noelle Carter, uh, both uh, long since moved on from the Times. Noelle Carter of Noelle Carter Food, her website in which she has recipes, cooking techniques, kitchen tips for the home cook. She used to run the test kitchen at the L.A. Times. And Russ Parsons was the food editor and columnist for the Times for many years. He's author of the cookbooks How to Pick a Peach and How to Read a French Fry, both of them joining us to take your food-related questions in this era of COVID-19 limitations and so many more meals being prepared at home. Bobby with us from Altadena. You're on Air Talk. Hi, Larry. Uh, I am really jonesing for a lemon meringue pie, and I have all the ingredients except the cream of tartar for the meringue, and I'm wondering what I can substitute. 
Yeah, cream of tartar, the, the, the about the only thing it's used for, I think. I don't know. But um yeah, uh Russ, do you wanna you have any way of substituting the cream of tartar? Well, Noel's the Noel is the pie queen, but I'll jump in and just say that the cream of tartar is just there to add stability to the meringue, uh to the to the whipped egg whites. It makes the egg whites uh, uh come to a stiff peak and hold their stiff peak just a little bit more reliably than they might otherwise. So if, if, you, if you do a good job of beating the egg whites, you want them to be stiff enough to hold a peak that when you lift the beater out, uh, it, it, it forms a sharp, stiff peak that doesn't fold over, you're not going to need the cream of tartar. That's my take. I'm Noelle Mayfield. Yeah, Noelle, what do you think? If you do happen to have it, I mean, Russ, is, if, if you're in a pinch and you don't have anything, stiff peaks are, are perfect. But if you happen to have them, a little, a touch of lemon juice or say like a teaspoon or so of uh, vinegar, white, just basic white vinegar, um, will help to add that stability. All right, Bobby. Sounds good. Thanks so much from Altadena. Laureen in Santa Monica, you're on with Russ and Noel. Good morning. There's no more flour on the shelves in the supermarket, and we're baking cookies. I have rice flour, I have corn meal. Uh, what can I do with these alternative flours for my recipes? Can I swap them in? Uh, ideas? And and was one of the things you wanted to make cookies? Is that right, Lorene? Cookies. Yeah, we're getting into the cookies. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Noelle? Gluten-free territory. And uh, there are recipes out there. I'll admit, I am not as much of an expert on gluten-free or gluten-free flours. But uh, there are recipes out there that do use cornmeal, that do use corn flour. The same thing with rice flour. If you look up, you know, cookie recipes, gluten-free, and then add rice or corn flour in your search descriptions when you're searching online, you will find recipes for that. Um, Other things that you can do, you can certainly make homemade tortillas with the cornmeal or the corn flour. Um, And one thing, I've gotten a lot of questions from friends, local friends here in Los Angeles that can't find flour. And there are a number of bakeries that, uh, and even restaurants that have turned into kind of small mini markets. And they're still getting deliveries in from their suppliers. If you contact your local bakeries, odds are they may have some flour and they may be selling it. All right. Very good. Lorene, good luck. Uh, and maybe a charitable neighbor. You, ne- you never know. Uh, let's see. We had, uh, oh, Joanne Burbank said, I didn't realize beans have a shelf life. When does the nutrition disappear? Russ, do you know? The nutrition, the nutrition never disappears. And beans are one of those, they're a staple that you can hold on to forever. The only thing that really happens is that it's going to take longer for them to cook. Um, if, if you've got beans that you suspect have been in your pantry for more than a year, I'd go ahead and soak them before I cook them. Um, but so, you know, soak, soak them overnight and just cover them with cold water. Um, normally I don't soak beans. I don't, uh, except with a few exceptions such as uh, chickpeas and things like that. But for most pinto beans, black beans, cannellini beans or, or white beans, whatever, they're calling them great northern beans. Uh, they don't need to be soaked. But if you have a, if you suspect that they've been in the pantry for a long time, where they've been stored for a long time, just go, then do go ahead and soak them. 
Uh, my my favorite home cook, Glenn, just put on the Air Talk page. Larry, don't panic. I'll do an emergency sumac delivery stat. And it's a picture. He's got sumac. I should know you have that, Glenn. Uh, is an incredibly equipped kitchen and a very accomplished home cook. 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. Um my friend's stick of butter turned orange. She was wondering if it's safe to eat if she scrapes off the orange part. Uh, that's from Natalie. Uh, Russ, do you know about orange butter? Yeah, it's, that's just a that's just oxidation. It's okay, not, um, you know, you could taste it. It probably it may taste a little bit rancid, but or the oxidized. Uh, but that's not, it's not dangerous in any way. It's just a flavor thing. And yes, if you scrape it off, you'll be fine. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Stuart, uh, messaging on the AirTalk Facebook page, I find myself with a lot of rockfish, shrimp, and garbanzo beans. Can you think of a hearty fish stew I could make in a slow cooker or in an instant pot? My wife is wary because she thinks the fish always comes out tough, but I'm convinced I can get around the problem with your advice. That's Stuart. Um, Noel or Russ, you want to take that on? You know, I'll I'll take it on, but I'm sure Russ has some great points too. If I were doing it in a slow cooker, um, it would it would make a great low and slow dish. I would probably add the fish towards the time when everything else is done, um, just because again, fish cooks quickly, and uh, once it's done, it's only going to continue to lose moisture and get a little tighter the longer it's it's under heat. Uh, so I would wait to add the fish so it's it's ready to go when the rest of the dishes is, is is done. Uh, Russ, a quick addition to that. Uh, I mean, with with, uh, with shrimp and, and rockfish and, and garbanzo beans, you've got a dish right there. Okay. Well, so the, the problem is going to the only problem that you're going to have with it is with it, wanting to do it in a slow cooker or in a in a in a an instant pot. Because those are, I mean, you've got a dish that you can cook on top of the stove in, in ten minutes. Okay. All right. Hey, Russ, thank you so much for joining us across the sea at Ireland. Uh, Russ Parsons, former food editor and former columnist, the L.A. Times, and Noel Carter, formerly the director of the L.A. Times Test Kitchen. Visit Noel Carter Food, the website in which she has all kinds of tips and great information. Thank you both. I'm so glad we could reunite you. We have a double header of Gavin Newsom coming up, his live news conference. Then A. Martinez interviews him at 2 on Take Two.